Fitness Pro Mentors community, welcome. As you know, we are obsessed with helping trainers like you have incredible careers, but one of my passions is science. And today we have someone who's absolutely well-recognized in the community and becoming well, well more established and was invited by popular demand by all of you, Mr. Evan Pycon. Evan, welcome to the Fitness Pro Mentors podcast, man. It's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Honestly, we did a little thing where we asked everybody, who do you want to have on the show? And there were a lot of like big name folks, but then equally recommended were you because you have been doing so much great stuff in the energy system world and with the Moxie stuff. I know a lot of the people in my world have been experimenting with those pieces of tech and getting great pieces of information. Um, so I'm really excited to get into this, man. So if you don't mind, do you mind starting this whole thing off by telling people a little bit about yourself and how the heck you ended up to where you are today as a researcher? Yeah, of course. So I'm a research physiologist and a computational biologist. I kind of dabble in some different fields depending on what day of the week it is. I originally started getting into fitness. I worked with a lot of top CrossFit Games competitors, professional endurance athletes, and you know normal weekend warriors uh, in a one-on-one -on -one fashion program design. After a few years of that, I transitioned into working as a applied physiology consultant primarily for professional sport teams in the U.S. and also for military special operations. And then as the years have gone on, I've, I'm still dabbling in that a bit, but now more on the technical side. I work for a biotech company um, and I develop biosensors and uh, do machine learning and analytics. So now we're kind of interfacing with some of those companies in a different manner. That's Awesome. Probably the most jam-packed few sentences I've ever had anybody say come on this show, which is absolutely <laughs> awesome, dude. Um, I mean, so listen, I'll be honest, and I said this before we started, anyone that knows me and uh, openly, I'm you know, a mechanist. I got some neuroscience background. I'm playing with exercise mechanics every single day, but the energy system in this physiological world is a bit outside my wheelhouse for sure. So I'm going to ask some rudimentary mm -hmm. questions, and you can definitely make fun of me. You're entitled to, but I got some people who ask some great questions. So I want to ask that with all the things that you're doing, um, I mean, typically it sounds like you've kind of got two different areas and where you've got three rather, there's some research stuff that you're doing. There's some tech stuff that you're actually helping with, which I believe is probably leading into the Moxie sensors. And then do you, are you still working, like kind of getting your hands dirty, working with athletes and working like in a one-on-one -on -one or a group coaching setting? So up until about three months ago, I was still working with athletes, teams, and military directly in a one-on-one -on -one fashion. Since the start of the new year, um, I'm no longer doing that. I do still interface with pro sport teams, more on the technical side. Uh, through my job, again, I, we develop biosensors. It's actually um, not Moxie. Uh, we do some different kinds of sensors, so I'm very involved with that process and also uh, experimenting with different ways of analyzing athletes' biological data to see what kind of insights we could create and what we could actually do to help these guys improve their performance. That's amazing. So, I mean, if, if you do you mind, I mean, to whatever end you feel comfortable sharing, like if you start working with a professional athlete, um, there, there's uh, obviously, I mean, do you have like a layer of preliminary screenings that you go through? And do you mind talking through mm -hmm. a little bit of your thought process to meet, a, meet an athlete, identify where they're at, and then what kind of protocols or processes mm -hmm. you put in place? Yeah, absolutely. So typically when I end up working with pro sport teams, I'm brought in for a very specific reason. So keep in mind if I were starting from the ground up and had to work with this athlete one-on-one, -on -one, I'd have a very different screening process. Typically the reason why I'm brought in to work with teams is that they want 
to either reduce their uh, injury burden on their players, speed up their return to play phases, or oftentimes, um, that means to do the classic, get athletes stronger, faster, better conditioned in a more efficient manner. So a lot of what I always try and do is identify what individual's exercise limiters are. The way that I tend to think of things is that we could only spend so much time a week training and if we could only spend a finite time, we need to make sure that everything we do is highly specific to an individual's goals. So if we kind of use a crude analogy, imagine we have like a factory production line. Keep in mind, I have no idea how factories work. So if someone here is like a engineer working in a factory and they're like, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about, they're absolutely right. They're not here. Well, let's good. say we have a factory. Okay, perfect. We've got three steps in this factory production line. Let's say it's a chocolate bar factory. So step one, we pour the chocolate in the mold because who doesn't like chocolate? Step two, we stamp our logo on these packages. And step three, we box up the chocolate bar packages. So we're smart factory owners. We want to make more of these chocolate bars each week. So we say, okay, I'm going to put 30% uh, greater workforce on step two in this production line. And we come back a week later and we want to check our stats and say, did we make more chocolate bars in the previous week? And we see, no, we didn't make a single more chocolate bar. We've put 30% more people on this factory floor. What the hell's going on? Well, it turns out that we didn't put our extra work force power on the rate limiting step. So now we just have a bunch of extra chocolate bars piled up at another station or not getting taken care of. So instead, we're a little bit more intelligent, we would say, okay, let's put this extra workforce on our rate limiting step in our factory production line. And if we do that, we're actually going to speed up the production process. The same thing happens from an exercise perspective. If we have a very clear rate limiting factor, and again, I, I come, tend to come from a bioenergetic or an integrative physiology background. So a lot of times I'm thinking about energetic limiters. We shouldn't waste conditioning time addressing things that are not the energetic limiter. We're not going to improve someone's VO2 max, their work capacity, whatever you want to call it. So a lot of what I do with different technologies is identifying what those rate limiting factors are and then figuring out how to actually train those. Where this has kind of maybe gotten a little bit more into um, your world, I think we have a kind of flip-flopped background. You had said earlier that you're more of a mechanist and a little bit well-versed in the energy systems. I think I probably have a complete 180 degree uh, role reversal with you where I'm much more well-versed in the integrated physiology, a little bit less so in the exercise mechanics. I'd say I'm probably about at an intermediate level there, but I have worked with a lot of organizations that coach IFBB bodybuilders, um, people of that caliber. And the reason why I've been brought into those organizations is that we tend to think of resistance training and energy system training as like these dualistic uh, things, like two sides of the same coin. But in reality, you can't actually separate these things from one another. Resistance training is energy system training. Energy system training is resistance training. The body speaks the language of tension and energetics. So there's actually a lot of nuance and reasons why we would want to look at resistance training through an energetic lens um, and potentially address some rate limiting factors there as well. Yeah, no, it's, it's super fascinating. And it's funny because, I mean, I've been doing this long enough that I don't know if you got to skip this phase and I hope that you did. Um, the providence of all of this for me was I was introduced to bodybuilding and I was heavily involved with natural bodybuilding and went hard on it for a while and got really into the biomechanics of it. Cause I, I loved it. It was cool. 
at that a time mm. when I started doing that 15, 17 years ago, the number of people that would say cardio is a waste of time. Don't do it. You don't need to worry about that stuff. I mean, it was like just a traditional soundbite that people just kind of became, it just became colloquial in gyms. And it seems that the last few years that it has come, especially with the, the adjunct of CrossFit becoming more popular and people obviously getting in ridiculous conditioning levels from doing highly aggressive forms of exercise like that, uh, it's clear that there's something about the conditioning side of things that's really important. And I watched one video that you put out on YouTube, and I'm going to paraphrase Butcher the snot out of this, but it was along the lines of that you had all these different sensors, and basically you put someone on a bike and you described how if they are unable to, if they start losing power, it means one thing. If they can maintain power, but their heart rate goes up high, and if there, there's so many different factors you are measuring, do you recall what I'm talking about with the bike thing as far as an assessment? Does that sound remotely familiar? <laughs> you yeah, might speak so into that, that a little? specifically. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what we were trying to do in that specific assessment is, if you've ever heard of a VO2 max test, VO2 uh, represents, the easiest way to think about it is that it's the maximum integrated capacity of the pulmonary system to uptake oxygen into your body, the cardiovascular system to deliver oxygen to the working muscles, and the muscular system to utilize that oxygen for energy. We could think of these as those three steps in that factory production line one of these steps is going to be lagging relative to the others. So what we were trying to do in that test was figure out for this athlete, which of those steps was lagging. I, I believe it was a female CrossFit Games competitor I was working with in yes, that video. Yeah, yeah. We were trying to understand yeah. is she limited by her pulmonary system, her cardiovascular system, her muscular system. And if we could identify that rate limiting factor, then we could be very strategic with her training to figure out what does she actually need to do to improve her conditioning. We could even say the same thing about bodybuilding though. For example, we know that ultimately we want mechanical tension in the tissue that's gonna to lead to a whole signaling cascade that is going to eventually lead to increases in muscle protein synthesis and uh, accretion of muscle proteins. So let's say we have this athlete and they're doing lateral raises. I think you and I, we probably come to the same place eventually, but we just probably get there through different means. So for me, I might have an athlete do lateral raises and I'll use a device that could measure oxygenation in a muscle tissue. So I take this athlete to failure on a set of lateral raises and they finish the set, they fail. And I'm like, hmm, they have really high oxygen levels in that muscle tissue. That's not sitting right with me. Because what I know is that there's an oxygen conforming response in this tissue. As you utilize oxygen at a faster and faster rate, and as you deplete oxygen in a tissue, there's going to be an increase in peripheral muscle fatigue. And that has to do with how we're handling ions in the tissue. That increase in peripheral muscle fatigue is going to increase motor unit activation and eventually cause mechanical tension. So if they're not deoxygenating the tissue, they're not getting mechanical tension. So now what I do from there is I kind of step backwards and figure out, well, why aren't they able to deoxygenate this tissue? Sometimes for a lateral raise, you might see, particularly in CrossFit athletes, uh, what we call hyperinflation patterns. These athletes are very good at breathing in, but they have really weak expiratory muscles. So they get stuck in this chest up posture, very extended thoracically, and they're not putting themselves in a good position to leverage the lateral delts. So we could work through that from more of an energetic lens to get them to where they could actually train their lateral delts and hypertrophy. It's probably not 
that dissimilar from some of the things that you may do, but we're thinking about it through a different lens. So this is where coming into some of these organizations that work with bodybuilders, a lot of the things that I do are the same as what the coaches in these organizations do, but by being able to um, kind of find a unifying language that we could talk to one another, we ended up finding some really uh, interesting findings, like how loading a muscle in a lengthened position versus a shortened position what is different energetically in the tissue in those two scenarios? So how does this influence what kind of stimulus we're going after in training? We could start to get into these very nuanced topics there. Yeah, you said so much. And there's like three things I wanted to ask you, but I want to come back to, <laughs> first and foremost, you were extremely kind by saying we would probably end up in the same spot. No, I appreciate that. Uh, but I want to come back to, I mean, so you said something interesting that you have the lateral divisions of the muscle. I might paraphrase this, so please correct me if I do, but you get the lateral divisions of muscles from doing a or an abduction exercise to try and grow some muscle there. You identify through your mechanisms. There's, there's a high level of oxygen saturation there, which means it's not sat. It's you're not depleting that and you can't get to the place where you're getting the tension required to get the hypertrophic response mm -hmm. and have those. So if that's the case and you come back, were you saying that in that scenario specifically that you would actually work on uh, working on exhalation rather than inspiration, like more kind of central axial skeletal wise, and then build up that skill set and that that will help the transition. I mean, without oversimplifying mm -hmm. it to potentially more lateral division, shoulder hypertrophy. Yeah, totally. And it's not that that's different cool. than how I'd approach someone like, for example, the athlete on the bike trying to improve their VO2 max. Yeah. Ultimately, you still have to start in the same place. What does the axial skeleton look like? If that athlete's stuck in thoracic extension, they're probably not going to be getting their VO2 max that high because they're not going to be able to fully exhale and clear CO2. So kind of coming back to what we talked about earlier with foundations, I mean, the foundations are always number one. What does the axial and appendicular skeleton look like at rest? Is that okay? What does it look like when it's moving? Is it still okay? If it is, what does an athlete's breathing mechanics look like as they're going through their positions? Are their tidal volumes sufficient, i.e. are they actually breathing in enough? And then subsequently, are they breathing out enough? What do the respiratory frequencies look like? And we could just keep spiraling out from there in getting more specific, of course, to what kind of training they're going after and what the adaptations are. I love this, man. So, I mean, the, mo the majority of the work that we use, we're using handheld dynamometers to measure output from right to left. Mm -hmm. And I have come from, I mean, from Jacques' influence in a very positive way. And then another gentleman, another scientist named um, Charlie McMillan exposed me to post-activation potentiation, which really helped us clean up some of our uh, hands-on processes when uh, preparing someone's skeletal muscle for exercise and whatnot. I will say that it's been the, just the last three years that the realization of how important everything you're talking about with oxygen saturation has really been a game changer. Um, the demographic, we have a business here called Strata Internal Performance, and we've got eight trainers and almost all of them, which are full time. And our demographic we work with are basically people who have pains and it tends to lean more towards mm -hmm. the 65 plus age demographic. And we focused forever on just strategic resistance exercise and frankly grew a good business from that. However, learning more from a rudimentary end at this point of how important it is to have people have better costal mechanics, not only from the mechanical perspective of having everything move, but actually to breathe better and actually have the energy available in the skeletal muscle to actually exercise it and get the responses we want. It's just been a game changer. I mean, with your, I want to come back to your high level stuff because it's ridiculous, but at this point, do you have uh, have you had any experience with your thought processes and methodology 
with working with seniors and older and more sensitive demographics? So honestly, I, I just haven't worked with that demographic one-on-one. -on -one. So I, I could imagine the importance of these topics, but I just don't have the hands-on experience with it. Well, let's, let's play a game because I'm, I'm super motor learning muscle focused and I'm interested in trying to eradicate that bias. If you, in your opinion, grandma comes in and she has never exercised a day in her life, but she's been told at <clears> 65 <throat> years old, she's got some osteoporosis, needs to start working on skeletal muscle to try away from that sacropenia <clears> thing. <throat> I, I'm so biased that we just get to the gym and we start figuring out what to do using range of motion assessments and whatnot. In your opinion, <clears throat> do you think that there would be some great, where do you think grandma should start? Do you think she should start off by building some base for motor learning and trying to build some control in her body and then move to some more oxygen management and learning how to use her, frankly, energy better and then go back to more specific goals? Or do you think she should work on energy system stuff first? Or I'm just interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, when we're working with someone that's very deconditioned, the reality is, is we're probably working on everything at all times to some degree. So I don't know how hyper specific I would even get with this population. I mean, definitely get them moving well, make sure they're not going to injure themselves. Yeah. But I'd probably say anything you can do to exercise this person, it's going to be beneficial. One of the things that's kind of hit this uh, point home for me, one of the things that I do often... Um, there's something called it's a DNA microarray. So if you imagine when we look at exercise science studies, what do we typically look at? They have X group of people, they do a training intervention and then we measure the response. So did they gain muscle? Did they get stronger? And that's how the exercise science literature evolves, right? We see what people do and we try and parse out what works better. There's actually a whole other field of exercise science that doesn't get talked about often, which is molecular exercise physiology. So what happens in these studies is we still measure the performance outcomes. One of the things that we do is before the study, you take a blood sample from everyone. And then after the study, you take a blood sample. And what you do is you look at their gene expression. So you create what's called a DNA microchip. It's basically a array that has the expression of tens of thousands of genes. So like 23andMe, they show you your genome. It's similar, but they're showing you your epigenome, what is or isn't expressed. One of the things that you see in very deconditioned people, and I've done these analysis, you look at their basal baseline results and you see what their gene expression looks like, and you basically have them do anything from an exercise standpoint. And then you look at their gene expression after the intervention, and everything is blown through the roof. It's uh, genes that are related to uh, muscle protein synthesis, genes that are related to blood vessel formation, like every exercise adaptation that you could think of, those genes are being expressed and upregulated. So people are literally getting all of these adaptations. Where when you do these same kind of studies with someone that's more experienced, we get a guy that's been bodybuilding for 20 years and you give him some really crappy lifting protocol that, oh, he's going to do three sets for each muscle group per week. We know nothing's going to happen. You look at the gene expression for genes relating to muscle growth, nothing happens whatsoever. So this is where for that very uh, elderly person, I'm like, you really could do anything and you're going to be upregulating these genes. And it kind of makes exercise a little bit less of a black box um, because ultimately everything is chemistry. Like you do bicep curls, it's a biochemical change that's actually causing the muscle growth. So I'm, yeah, I mean... We could go in a whole bunch of directions with this. I don't want to 
blabber too much. No, well, it brings up something really cool that Jacques said when I interviewed him last, and I, and I think you're kind of going this way. It's not so much like coming back to like the middle ground of uh, quality of dem or demographics, rather. He, was, he said something really interesting to me that triggered me thinking about it, and I think that you're kind of going with it. If you take two people and you put them into an insane spin class and they all start spinning and spinning and spinning, one guy, same age, same size, same everything it seems like on the outside, his leg muscles just blow up and grow and just get like this insane hypertrophy. While the guy beside him, no hypertrophy whatsoever, really no seeming outside changes. I'm wondering mm. like in that scenario is that lining up with some of the gene stuff that you're talking about some of the things you would look for or is there a component of that that's just hereditary and just a kind of a, a limiter and a, a non-starter yeah so I, i'm gonna say yes to all of the above there there is a heredit hereditary component i mean everything yeah. but a lot of it is also what someone is coming into this exercise session with because we, we assume that a given protocol is going to elicit the same response in everyone, but that's not really true. It's what are you coming in with? What is the protocol doing for you personally? And how do you interact with the environment? And when I say environment, I mean more of like a compounding stimulus over time, because we both know you could go in the gym right now and lift a bunch of weights. You're not going to be jacked tomorrow. It's you need to create an environmental stimulus and keep hitting the nail on the head multiple times. So this is what particularly for conditioning, um, some people have dysfunctional vasculature, like they just can't dilate their blood vessels properly. So if you're giving them HIIT training, you're probably not going to be getting them the response that you want. Where other people, they are very limited by their cardiovascular system's ability to supply oxygen to the working muscles. So if you have them just doing a steady state bike for an hour, you're actually probably making them hypoxic in their peripheral tissues rather than getting these central cardiovascular adaptations that you want. So it's where we could get to this point and say, hey, this protocol should do X, Y, or Z from more of a textbook classical perspective. But when you marry that protocol with an individual's physiology, you don't always know what you're going to get. And this is where uh, I always think of it like chefs versus cooks. Um, a chef in a restaurant, they don't follow a specific cookbook. They're very creative, so they kind of tweak things on the fly and they use their intuition and they have an innate understanding of the chemistry of cooking. Or a cook that just follows a cookbook recipe, they're going to do it exactly by the same steps every time. And results will vary because sometimes the quality of the food's not the same. You need to adjust timing. So as coaches, we want to be less of cooks who just read the exercise science literature and just take protocols word for word. And we just want to be more of chefs where we could have that creative intuition and actually modify things for the individual. And again, that comes back to what I'm sure you're doing with exercise biomechanics. You're probably not saying every single person needs to move in the exact same way. There's the principles, but then you modify them for the individual. Well, this is, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I would say everyone that's listening to this right now and everyone who will be listening to it, I would say the majority of them are mechanists in that they've studied the physics and they've studied the anatomy and it's the freedom that they get within that from that chef perspective with exercise. But I would bet that a solid 80% of the people that are listening to this, the things you're talking about, makes 100% sense, but no one has an idea where to start. And what I'd love to ask, I have some advanced questions from a few different people Advanced that I don't understand them. So, <laughs> so they're a little outside, but I've, I've been having some with them. But what I'd love to ask is, you know, I've got a gym with a team of trainers and we've got a bunch of trainers in our program and a bunch of trainers that are just in our community. 
if someone is just listening to you for the first time, everything you're saying makes so much sense because I mean, how many people come and see a trainer and they go, just get on the bike for 20 minutes and we'll get started. And they're accidentally creating potentially a hypoxic state that creates a problem or they try to do something and they're not getting, they're trying to do an exercise following the exercise rules and they don't get the hypertrophic response, the strength response, the endurance response or whatever. So I'm new. I don't know all of this. Where does a trainer start to get into this and how far and how easily can they access some of these protocols and thought processes to start doing some of these assessments? Obviously not at your level yet, but where does a trainer start? Yeah, so I'd say this is probably similar to exercise biomechanics in that once you start learning about these RTS concepts, things get a little bit more complicated before they actually get simpler. Like once you've really mastered those concepts, you could apply them in a very fluid manner. You don't need to think through all this complexity. It's kind of similar with the energetics. Things get a little bit more complex until they ultimately become simpler and more practical. So before even getting into any of the deep physiology and bioenergetics, I would just recommend people look up a concept called speed preservation profiling. It doesn't require any understanding of bioenergetics. Essentially, it allows you to understand how someone preserves speed over time. So if we take two very extreme avatars, we have one person, they run an 800 meter all out, they run two miles all out, and they run 5k all out. But their average pace on all of those distances is the same. It's kind of that person that you look at their one, three, and five rep max on a back squat, and you're like, these are all a pound and a half away from each other. There's something a little off here. Uh, versus a very uh, extreme avatar on the other end where you look at their 800 meter time and it's phenomenal. You're like, man, this guy's a elite level 800 meter runner. And you look at their 5k time. You're like, did he crawl through mud on this 5k? Like what is going on here? They have no ability to preserve their speed. Those are clearly two people on very extreme ends of the spectrum. That person who has one gear, they kind of hold the same pace no matter what they're doing, they're going to be limited by their rate of oxygen utilization in the muscle. Assuming they don't have some kind of tissue pathology, they probably need to do something quite high intensity uh, to stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis. So stimulating little energy factories in the muscle that are going to allow them to utilize oxygen at a faster rate. That could be a repeat sprint protocol. It could be a lot of different things. It might even just be resistance training. The person who has that big speed drop off, they're very fast, but they have no ability to preserve speed. They probably need to work on developing their pulmonary system or their cardiovascular system. The caveat though is, is that these people typically can't really do the things that we all think about as like long steady state conditioning. So you often have to make it look quite different. So maybe instead of having them do a 5K run at a moderate threshold pace, Maybe instead I have them do uh, 25 200 meter repeats at that same pace with a 30 second rest in between. What that's going to allow them to do is relax the muscle and get blood restoring because one of the things that we don't often consider is that the cardiovascular system is a big closed loop. The same blood that's ejected from the heart is the same blood that's coming back to the heart. What happens with a lot of these individuals is they contract their muscles with a lot of force but they don't fully relax the muscles. So blood pools in the veins in the extremities. Well, if blood's pooling in the veins, less of that blood is coming back to the heart. And that means they're lowering their own cardiac output. So now they're not getting these centralized adaptations that we want them to. So this is just a very simple 
way to look at it. Integrative physiology, the deeper you go and the more complex it gets because you need to consider how the brain regulates blood flow to the tissues. You need to consider metabolic regulation of tissues. It's, it's a lot of different layers of complexity. So only because, I mean, makes perfect sense. Um, so, I mean, going back to that particular example where someone can't do a 5K and perhaps you talk about doing 200 meters for a period of time with the spacing in between, if you get to that scenario where they are not moving their blood around enough, is, does in, for your, in your opinion, and of course this is going to change, but I'm just curious, would you try to maintain that 30-second spacing in between each, between each one, even though their performance and their body is getting a little bit worse each time, or would a staggered, slightly increased rest period each time allowing them to recover, but ultimately still get the same 5K volume? It, it, do you lean towards one of those more so than the other? Or I guess it's for each person differently. Yeah, and this comes down to whether we're auto-regulating it or whether we want to take more of a fixed interval approach. So if I wasn't using any technology, didn't want to auto-regulate things with this client, let's say they have a very low training IQ, they, they just don't know their body that well, and if you leave them to auto-regulate, things are just going to get a little bit too complex. What I would probably do is try and pick the pace appropriately. So the first few sets probably aren't going to be that stimulative for them and it's really as they're getting into the later sets is where they're getting more deoxygenation but i would structure the intensity and the rest period such that i think they're going to be able to reoxygenate their tissues properly throughout this entire workout and there are some things that we could do with this client to try and get a better feel for this so let's say i'm not with them they're just doing their own thing on their own sending me their results i would ask them questions like did you feel some blood starting to pool in your limbs during this workout and if they're like yeah 18 sets in my quads felt like water balloons and it felt like they were very filled with blood okay they probably were actually filled with blood you're probably getting venous pooling at that point so next time we know that that was something that you experienced maybe we need to tweak things so that doesn't happen so there's a lot of these types of things that we could use to try and adjust their training Oh, I love this, man. I just want to keep going on nerdy things, but I got to ask these questions for people or someone's going to kill me. Um, but this is great, man. Thank you so much for sharing all this. This is just brilliant. So kind of on this note, so Jacques asked, Jacques Henry Newell Taylor, for anyone who's not familiar, and he asked very simply through text, and I hope this makes sense to you. He says, what assessment would you do for an ultra marathon runner? 5-1-5, question mark. Okay, so yeah, uh, just to quickly hit on the 5-1-5. So that's something called the 515 assessment, essentially five minutes on, one minute off, five minutes on again. You just keep repeating that pattern. The reason why it's called the 515 is that you do the same intensity twice. So you might go on a bike five minutes at 200 watts, rest a minute, five minutes at 200 watts, rest a minute, and then the next time you increase the load. Uh, moving away from the 515 for a second, one of the things that I've noticed with ultramarathon runners that is really bizarre is they have uh, very little ability to regulate their arterial blood pressure really late into events. So a few years ago, I worked with a few elite ultramarathon runners. And where I start getting clued into this aspect of physiology is one of them told me in the most casual manner that they've gone into cardiac arrest twice during races. And then the others start to chime in. They're like, oh, yeah, once I typically get around X miles in, these were people that race 200 milers often. They're like, yeah, once you get 180 miles in, once you stop running, you black out. I'm like, what? They're like, oh, yeah, we're fine when we run, but when we stop, we black out. 
and then we wake up a few minutes later and we're fine. But then anytime we go to a pit stop and we stop running, we just faint. What is going on here? Well, it turns out our brain's always trying to regulate our arterial blood pressure. It's something that you keep it in a very narrow range. Arterial blood pressure gets too high. You're obviously at risk of stroke, among many other things. It gets too low. You faint. Well, when you're running, you're vasodilating the extremities. So you're essentially opening up the pipes and your heart's increasing to get blood to the extremities. Well, one of the issues is that the skeletal muscle pump, it's essentially a second heart. So we think of our main heart in our chest. The skeletal muscle acts as a second heart in the periphery. So we push blood out to the extremities. The muscles contract and push blood back to the heart. In you really never see a failure of this system under normal circumstances because even right now at rest, we have some base level of muscle tension. Um, you've ever heard soldiers when they stand up for hours in a row, sometimes they black out. One of the ways that they could prevent this is you just lightly flex your calves a bit and you push that venous blood back to your heart. Well, what happens in these ultra marathon runners is they're so vasodilated and their muscles get so fatigued that when they stop running and their muscles aren't contracting, they don't have enough muscle tone in their periphery to actually maintain their blood pressure. So they just get this huge hypotensive event when they stop running, and then they faint until their blood pressure normalizes and they come back. So with ultramarathon runners, it's really hard to parse this out in something like a 515 test or anything that we're gonna do in a gym personally. I can't think of any amount of money that someone's gonna pay me to watch them on the salt bike for 17 hours <laughs> while I put them through a physiologic assessment. So I typically think that this is just going to be an issue for them. It's just the reality of the sport. So it sounds so counterintuitive, but improving their ability to create tension in the periphery, that's going to be such a huge factor. The second one is going to be improving their maximal cardiac output. Oftentimes people don't really think about this for ultra runners because they really are never hitting peak cardiac outputs in their event. They're kind of just chugging along at relatively low cardiac outputs. But the reason why we want to improve the maximum cardiac output is if we raise the ceiling up, then they're doing their race at a lower percentage of that. So when they are getting so far into these races that they have this extremity vasodilation, when they stop, they're able to increase their cardiac output enough to actually maintain their blood pressure and maintain their consciousness. Where if they're running at a higher percentage of it, when they stop, they're putting themselves at uh, risk of that hypotensive event. So it's, it's a lot of kind of like weird pathophysiology that you need to deal with in these populations because their sport is doing something so inherently threatening to blood pressure regulation. Well, I mean, on that note, just like with that last sentence, are there athletes? I mean, I think of CrossFit athletes like this, and if anyone has a problem with it, they can let me know. But what they do at high level, it's it's so insane the amount of volume and how aggressively are they approaching it. In some cases, are you working with athletes and you full well know this is an insane thing that you're trying to do with your body, but here's the best way to move through the China shop without breaking stuff? Yeah, and that's exactly it. I mean, I don't tell athletes that they shouldn't go after these insane goals. It's more that they tell me they're going to, and then I work with them to figure out how to uh, get them there as best as possible. It's the same thing. I've worked with multiple podium CrossFit Games competitors, a lot of the athletes in the top 10 on the male and female side. And you're right, it's an extreme sport. The things that they put their bodies through are 
insane at times. Um, so it's just figuring out how to work with that as best as possible. So I want to move on to a question that one of our community members, Rob, is asking. And uh, he's asking, how does watching muscle oxygen saturation and desaturation as well as monitoring arterial and venous occlusion play into appropriate dosage of exercise? Load, range of motion, timing, repetitions, rest in between sets, and so on. Yeah, so the short answer is that I'm assuming this is geared towards resistance training. I'm going to make that assumption if that's not true. My bad. So hypothetically, let's say someone is lifting weights and they're not able to uh, get venous or arterial occlusion. One, they're probably not going to be an effective intensity range. And just to define these terms, we could think of venous occlusion. If you've ever turned on a hose and you squeeze the end of the hose so the water starts to pool in the hose and swell up and it can't escape. That's what you could think of venous occlusion like. So in simple terms, you're creating enough tension in the muscle tissue that blood's still able to get into that tissue, but it can't escape, so it starts to pool there. If you create even more tension, now you occlude the artery, so blood can't get into that tissue or out of that tissue. When you look at the hypertrophy literature, depending on what body, it suggests that roughly from 30 to 90-ish percent of someone's one rep max is going to be, uh, it's called an effective loading range for muscle hypertrophy, assuming you take a set to near failure. But that low end cutoff of that range does vary. It's not a hard 30% for everyone across the board. There's some studies showing that people could get hypertrophy with as low as 20%. Some people, their low end cutoff is 40 or 50%. A lot of this has to do with what load you begin to get venous occlusion. If you have steady blood flow to a tissue at 50% of your one rep max, you're not going to be able to deoxygenate that tissue and create that peripheral fatigue that is going to lead to mechanical tension. Where on the flip side, if you're someone that's actually creating occlusion at 20% of your max, it's probably going to be a range that you could get hypertrophy. Now, the big caveat is that actually identifying venous and arterial occlusion is much harder than most people realize. In the past, I've created um, continuing education content for a lot of sports tech companies. And just by virtue of uh, the audience that you have to speak to in these kinds of courses, it's people that are new to the technologies. So we need to simplify things a bit. And I think I've oversimplified a lot of these concepts in the past to where people will visually look at some of these data trends and believe that, oh, that's venous occlusion, that's arterial occlusion. I'd go so far as to say that you can't actually identify these things visually by looking at these data trends. It actually requires some statistical analysis of the trends to understand certain relationships and see if these things are occurring. If you could do that, then you could actually parse out these thresholds. But it, it is harder than most people would realize. Well, I mean, on that note, I mean, two questions. I mean, one, weekend warrior, is there any subjective sensation that a very intuitive body person could have to know that that's happening? And or if not, is there any, oh, I even hate asking this, but is there any like ballpark, ballpark style set and rep scheme that you would recommend in that? do these style sets traditionally to try to create this occlusion response in these two areas and then do the tension-based work or anything like that? Yes, I mean, a ballpark sensation, totally. Like, imagine if you pick up a five-pound dumbbell right now and you curl it for a set of 10. You're 
probably not going to feel that much. There's just going to be very little pump in the tissue. You're not going to feel tension. Or once you start getting to more of an effective loading range, after you do a set, you're going to feel blood engorging the tissue to some degree. It's going to feel full. Uh, if you put your hand on it, you may actually feel feet. Uh, feel heat in the tissue, and that's because there's more blood there. So a lot of these sensations, blood pooling in a tissue, feeling actual heat on the tissue, these are all good signs that you're probably um, creating these occlusions in the muscle. In terms of rep ranges, set ranges, I mean, I tend to be a little bit simplistic in this and that I, I work backwards with is the exercise going to be sufficient for what we're going after is the load roughly in the range that we want it to and then i would think okay what is the proximity to failure that we want you to get to and then i just have people auto regulate the intercept volume in most cases so i'm never really working with defined set or rep ranges that's usually the one thing that we're leaving up in the air well that brings up like this is a cheesy question but i mean and i've had I mean, I've taught a lot of mechanics classes. I've had people ask this, and my answer has varied over the years. But I mean, on that last set and rep thing, forgetting about sets and reps, but let's say you've got an optimal resistance and you're going to an addict, you can go to an addict place of failure. Do you think that there's value to doing a set or two or a couple, a handful of sets, not to fatigue, to try to create more of a blood flow occlusion style response, and then doing more of the tension go to fatigue work or going to fatigue each set and accumulating? I feel like I'm asking the most stereotypical bodybuilding question, but no, I'm no. actually just curious. <laughs> It, it, it's a great question. This is where, like, I always think in the context of what is this like, if we want to make this single session as effective as possible, are we trying to maximize stimulus across multiple days or a week? So it's always with the context of what are we actually going after today? So, for example, if, let's say, for whatever reason, context aside, we decide that today we want to load the bicep muscle in a lengthened position. Well, one of the things that I know about loading a bicep in a lengthened position is that you're more prone to compressing your blood vessels. So you tend to desaturate the tissue faster, but there's less of a change in blood volume in that tissue. Well, just knowing energetically what's going on in this circumstance, you're going to be more prone to muscle damage. Um, and there's multiple reasons for that. Uh, primarily thinking about the structure of ATPs, what's called a biological hydrotrope, essentially ATPs of a scaffolding of the cell. Um, but in these cases, I know that you're going to be limited by your total set volume. So I would typically keep the repetitions in reserve a little bit higher so we could leverage more total volume and get that area under the curve of stimulus higher. Where if we're loading a muscle in a shortened position, you actually deoxygenate the tissue at a slower rate but you get a greater change in blood volume in that tissue. So what happens when you load the muscle lengthened is once oxygen in the tissue bottoms out, the set's done, like you can't get another rep in. Or when you load a muscle in a shortened position, you could bottom out oxygen in that tissue and you could continue performing more work with the tissue in this hypoxic state. It's because you're progressively able to push more blood into the tissue. So in this case, I'd be more comfortable taking the set closer to failure knowing that we're still able to get more blood in. And then when you do a rest period, you could reoxygenate the tissue and you could leverage more uh, set volume. So it's a lot of it is what are we trying to go after from a stimulus standpoint? What makes the most sense in the context of the day, the week, which is always a cop out answer. It's one yeah, of those no, like, no. You know, it's cool. 
I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you're familiar with Arthur Jones, the the founder of Nautilus. But I mean, in exercise mechanics mm. land, I mean, he was all about the one to two sets. He's creating the perfect resistance profile through the cam, so that way this exercise there was a an appropriate amount of resistance loaded to the strength curve. So if they were in the shortened position and it was weaker, decreased resistance, I'm sure you're familiar with that. And yep. he was really all about like being as efficient as possible. And he did the Colorado experiment trying to showcase hypertrophy. But I would say like I jumped into that world, I went all in. And to me that, I don't know, but to having that quote unquote, if you even could, having a perfect profile consistently through an entire range where there's a quote, a, a theoretically an even loading through the most massive range possible, it seems like you would create like a hypoxic state really quick, but you wouldn't be able to necessarily benefit from the extremes of focusing on the lengthened end and or the shortened end, which creates like a really interesting, you know, juxtaposition to how a lot of these bodybuilders thought about it in the seventies and eighties. It's just, it's very interesting. Yeah, for sure. And it's one of those things that we, we could start to speculate all we want about X, Y, or Z, but so much of this data doesn't exist we're all talking about things from a different perspective and it's really in recent years that we're starting to marry these different perspectives and i think something uh really nuanced and interesting is going to come of that but there's so many questions that we just can't answer right now which is frustrating and kind but of there's fun. but like with you and many others i would say that there's definitely way more conversation you know about you know cardio breathing stuff at all and not in the cheesy sense for weight loss, but really about how it benefits every other part of the system, which is just like, it's really cool. It's really, really cool. And I have to say, I mean, to anyone that has, I got to compliment you because your delivery of this stuff is you have the science and you're also to break it down. Your ability to break it down is just fantastic. So I love that. Um, I got a question from one of our students in FPM, Michael Cooper. Uh, he asked a few questions and you actually answered them throughout this. But the last question he asked was, with regards to technology and assessing physiology, what tech are you currently most excited about? Uh, this is a easy question for me. I can't give too much details though, is I work for a company called Knox. We're a biotech company and we're developing a really a next gen wearable that the measurements that our device will take, there is no other device on the market that makes these. It's measurements that used to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to measure in a lab. And we're making it non-invasive and portable for cheaper than really any other wearable on the market. It's gonna have applications for resistance training, injury prevention, improving endurance. And where a lot of these uh, types of technology like MOXIE or metabolic analysis that people are familiar with, you really need to know your physiology to get use out of these. Uh, we're applying machine learning to everything. So all the analysis is automated. So people don't need to understand any physiology. They just pop the device on, it will interpret the data for them. And for people like us that might want to dig a little bit more into the physiology, they could also get the raw data and do their own experiments and fun things with it. So I'm pretty pumped about that. Yeah, that sounds sick. Is that a consumer product or is that going to be more for professionals? Uh, it, it's going to be both. So there's going to be different tiers of the product depending on what people want it for. So there'll be versions for the average person going to the gym, doesn't really care about the data, up to uh, military and professional sports. Dude, please keep me posted. And when you're ready to talk about it, I will helpfully, happily help you promote it as fast as possible because I'm sure that of the people listening right now, and people who listen to this in the future, there will be people who will buy it <laughs> for sure. Yeah, that'd be awesome. 
Evan, man, I got to say, I think this is a great place to put a pin in it today. I have actually a ton more questions, but for anyone who's listening to it, I already talked to Jacques about this and talked to you about this. We're going to have you on again in the future with Jacques Henry Newell Taylor of the Exercise Design Lab. I think it's going to be a blast. Um, so we're going to have you on again. I'm really excited about that. But I mean, Evan, where where can people find out more about you and the things that you've worked on in the past? I know you've put a bunch of academic information out there on YouTube. Yes. Yeah, so easiest place to find me right now uh, would be Instagram. I put a lot of short form content on there and my handle name is first and last name. So just Evan underscore Picon. Um, and I also have a Substack platform called the Emergent Performance Lab Substack, and that's where I put all of my long-form contents. There's probably 100 articles on there or something of that nature. Beautiful, man. Evan, listen, dude, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy person and you're well in demand. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing this hour of wisdom with the Fitness Pro Mentors community and me. It's been very eye-opening, and I'm really excited to learn more about this stuff. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me, man. I'm looking forward to chatting with you and Jack. Oh, dude, it's going to be great. I'm working on dates. We'll talk about it yeah, real soon. It's going to be a lot be of cool. fun. Yeah. I'm going to be just, it's going to be bad. I, I'm just, I'm, I did this before. I'm just going to be sitting in the background and watching, and that's cool. You guys do your thing, and I'll throw in a question here and there. So I'm excited, man. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right, man. Have a great one.